The goal of Data Transformers podcast is to accelerate digital transformation by bridging the gap between business outcomes and rapidly advancing technologies. And we aim to bridge this gap by focusing on data. I am Peggy Sai, top 50 women in tech influencer, co-author of the AI book and data governance expert. I'm Ramesh Danta, an entrepreneur, a tech blogger, and AI enthusiast. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Data Transformers. I'm so pleased to have with us today Courtney Abercrombie, the CEO and founder of AI Truth for AI Ethics and Responsible AI. She's also named one of the 12 brilliant women in artificial intelligence and ethics to watch, and also top 100 innovators in data and analytics. So, so pleased to have you, Courtney, with us today. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Love. I, I, I've been following you, Peggy, on online as well. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. We're mutual admirers of each other. Yes. <laughs> Welcome, Courtney. So I think uh, Peggy could have gone a lot more introducing you. With, there are so many accolades that are out there. So, yeah. So congratulations. Yeah, and then we would falsely build people's hopes, and we don't want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so we're all just people. <laughs> We all have our strengths and our weaknesses. <laughs> so. We'll focus on, on the strengths today, Courtney. I mean, really, you're a recognized AI and data analytics expert. Um, let's just first talk about, you know, your company, AI Truth. Um, you know, just the words AI and ethics today, they're, it's a, these are two really loaded words. Um, why how can we have ethics around AI? I mean, the difficulty of enforcing ethics and having a code of conduct around AI is such a large conversation. I mean, I'd love to first start off, Courtney, um, where do you begin understanding and, and putting a structure around this area in place? Well, I would say the very first thing that has to happen, which a lot of companies haven't done is to really look at your AI strategy as a whole, not just your AI strategy, but honestly, you've got to take a look at what matters to you as a company as a whole. Um, so if there are policies in place, um, if you, for example, value diversity and inclusion as a company as a whole, then you need to value diversity and inclusion in your AI as well. Everything that matters to you and your brand and your company and your reputation everything that matters to your customers, those are all things that you need to make sure come through in your AI strategy. And as part of that, then you would, you would start your AI ethics journey as part of your AI strategy journey. <laughs> um, and your AI strategy really should be an extension of what you're trying to do in general for your customers, right? So that's, I just start with the holistic approach. Like if it's the same thing as like you wouldn't steal $20 off the ground from somebody. If someone dropped $20, you'd probably pat them on the back and say, hey, you just dropped $20. If you wouldn't steal $20 digitally from somebody online just because you could, then you probably shouldn't do let your AI do that either. <laughs> right? right? And you want to, you got to make sure that you've got safeguards in place to make sure that doesn't happen. Um, whether it's the $20 or whether it's, um, which is more, you know, that people don't want to lose money, but, um, you know, or it's someone's security 
or it's someone, I mean, if you know secrets about someone and you're the kind of person that you probably wouldn't out those secrets to everybody, well then don't do it online and definitely don't let your AI strategy do that and make sure that you go through with a fine tooth comb and understand what your AI is doing, how it's doing it. And those are the things that are hard because one, there's a whole culture in place, right? Yeah. That kind of prevents a whole lot of question asking. Well, there's a culture of, hey, I'm the data scientist. I'm fantastic. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you just, Mr. or Mrs. Chief Digital Officer or whatever you are, just follow my lead because I'm the expert here in machine learning. So I've got the PhD and you've got the marketing degree. You stay in your lane and I'll stay in my lane and don't ask me a lot of questions. So there's a, there's a, there's a cultural aspect that if I ask questions that somehow I am um, thwarting your position or your role or your authority. Right. But then there's another aspect too, to this, that um, there's a lot of people who pay for AI mm -hmm. don't, they, there's a huge gap, and this is why I use this little diagram so much. <laughs> but this, let, let's say this example is a chief marketing officer, and they want some kind of AI-driven social media command centers. Those are very popular with, with, yeah. with marketing folks, right? You want social media analytics as much as you can. But there's a little pod of data science people here that's working with you on this. And you probably don't understand half of what goes on in data engineering and data lunging, for example, you probably don't, you probably have no clue what it takes to source data. Like if I need, and this is a really funny one, um, but it's one for, for um, tractors, right? So um, it's funny because people don't think of John Deere as being like some kind of really, when you think of tractors, what do you think about, right? You know, John Deere, yeah. you're not, you know, you're thinking of farmers. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And also you're thinking of a legacy company, a manufactured company, right? Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I don't, I mean, in the past anyway, until I knew yeah. about how advanced John Deere is about, you know, with their equipment, they can have, they actually have pieces of equipment. They can identify heads of cabbage for crying out loud and whether it's good or bad and put it in the, put it in the wagon for, you know, for making food out of it or just leave it behind and it'll become ground up into the ground or whatever. But yeah. that's how sophisticated even farming is today, much less, and it uses AI. But to get back to the data sourcing, how do you get pictures of heads of lettuce and cabbage <laughs> to know what's the good cabbages and what are the bad cabbages? There's some group sitting in India most of the time, uh, sometimes uh, now uh, more uh, more than ever before, also in uh, Africa. There's a lot of people, I don't know if you've read uh, the ghost work and all of that good, that the book, it's on the AI truth reading list. So if you want to okay. go, look it up. but there's people behind how you get a lot of the data, right? Because yeah. somebody's got to be labeling all of this stuff. Correct. The correct thing. Yeah. In some cases, when we talk about healthcare cases, it's doctors. Um, they have to say, and, and image diagnostic uh, folks. So they have to say, yep, that's breast cancer, right? This little part right here mm -hmm. in this image is the actual, but there's this, all this labeling that goes on. And today data sourcing by itself, I call these people informally when I talk to just regular folks, like 
people you meet at the post office, I tell them these are like the data librarians. Like everybody knows what a librarian is, <laughs> right? They go, you tell them, hey, I'm trying to find this. And then they say, okay, let me go. I, I've got, I think I've got several books on that. Well, in this case, these, these people say, I need heads of cabbage <laughs> or I need people like this, this and this that I'm trying to find in the case of a personal, let me put it back in context of the social media environment, right? Yeah. You're normally going to have some kind of customer that you're targeting in this particular context of that scenario, right? Yeah. You're going to go to these data sourcing people and you say, find me some people that are like this, 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 like I'm picking down a Chinese menu, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then they're going to go and they're going to figure that out. And then they're going to come back and they're going to work with data scientists who are data engineers, whose specific job is to just munge, munge, munge that data to get okay. it into formats that work. Um, they may munge like several different um, sources of data, usually set up in, in an application interface of some sort, um, you know, so that they can just stream it down. Now, the, the and that's where, believe it or not, 90% of what goes wrong is with data. Because it's either the training data that yeah. you brought in and you sourced. Or labeling data. Or you made up data because you couldn't find heads of cabbages that were wrong, five ways to Sunday messed up. Yeah. <laughs> or you... Uh, or somebody in India who's never seen a cabbage before was like, well, this kind of looks like okra. I don't know. <laughs> like, you know or some, <laughs> I don't know. You can yeah. correct me. But, <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> but, you know, it's like, and, and because we have people in other cultures labeling a lot of what gets used in the United States, uh, you know, where they don't even know sometimes what they're, <laughs> they're like, hmm, what am I looking at? But I'm getting paid to do this job, so I must... Something <laughs> right. So you're bringing up really, you know, an excellent point about different cultures participating in the preparation of AI. So recently we spoke to one guest. He mentioned the two cases. Uh, quote me. One case is where mortgage applications, right? Mm -hmm. So the data that is there, some extent is biased, right? With yeah. humans uh, looking at the applications and then figuring out, right? So and then you fed that into AI, then obviously it it gave you predictions based on that, that one aspect of it. The second aspect of it, if the training data is based on one class of, you know, people, like it's, uh, it could be, you know, Caucasians, it could be depending on the culture or whatever, right? So, and then you, you use that, like it's a facial recognition as an example, right? So then all your training data uh, is based on a, a certain class of people, certain section of people, certain culture people, and then you apply that to a different section, then obviously it's going to give you, you know, a wrong outcome. So given these challenges, you know, where do you think, Courtney, who, who is accountable for making sure that the ethics and then the responsible AI is in place in organizations. Now, this is a key question. Who is responsible? Um, and I've got a long list of things that we could talk about. And I'm gonna just put this. This is like my um, very technical version of things. Right here. <laughs> but, um, my handwritten um, a version of things. But all of those things I listed, sometimes, there are responsible people to rectify situations. Mm -hmm. Sometimes there aren't. Sometimes there are accountability people. Sometimes there aren't. 
Yeah. And this, the first thing you have to do to even understand where things are going on and mm -hmm. wrong, going wrong, is you have to figure out what, how do things get done inside of the companies that are having these bias problems on a regular basis. And then when you figure out the process that they, that they undertake, which is the, the approach that I've taken. So a lot of academics just talk about the problem. But they don't talk about the problems in context of how is this getting played out inside the business. And part of my job at IBM was, you know, to go around, fly around to all, and to all of these Fortune 500 companies and understand exactly how do they do what they do? And did mm. we want to invest in it to scale to the whole of the industry? So, like, for example, the social media command centers, that was one of the things that I flew on site to visit with data scientists mm -hmm. and their chief digital officers and understand how were they using these, how did they set them up, who in their organizations were doing what parts, and, and how did it get done, um, and how did they work back and forth with the main uh, funder of the project. So, the people who fund the projects don't always know what goes into the projects, the data. Right. Remember, cabbages <laughs> or whatever. They have no idea if someone made up purple cabbages because they couldn't find purple cabbages. They don't know if, you know, they don't know what happened over here Correct. to be able to even say. So, so could we even say these people are responsible? Yes, because we know they fund this, right? So we have to look at each person's role and this even down to the product, product manager, building enough time in to evaluate more about the data sourcing. Um, you know, even, even that person developing the data scientist specifically involved with the development of the algorithm is mm -hmm. responsible. So when you add, even the person who comes up with the design thinking, <laughs> the, the UX design, the people who will start the pro kickstart the process, if we're lucky, by saying, let's evaluate use cases for what you want to achieve. Because sometimes chief marketing officers and insert any digital, I mean, executive, it could be a chief financial officer, it could be a chief operations officer, it could be anybody. Um, it's usually a chief because they have the money. <laughs> right, right. But they've usually got some kind of initiative, like I want to do... Um, I want to do more with personal experience or I want to monitor trends and be more reactive with social media or it starts with those kinds of goals um, and then it works into okay now how do we manifest those goals into some kind of AI initiative or use case um, and what often happens is even at the design level people should say is this a use case we should pursue with AI mm -hmm. Sometimes, even from the very get-go, it's a big fat nope. <laughs> yeah. It's too subjective, and we don't have enough data. Like sometimes you have to say, "Okay, team, you know what data is available without lying and making up data and using tons of proxies that are inappropriate to use. Would we would we be able to viably pull off whatever this use case is and the goal of the use case?" And could we not just viably pull it off, but could we pull off the use case in a way that actually does more good than potential harm? And what I mean is, if, for example, I want to, um, real scenario, um, cigarette companies, right? Mm -hmm. um, is it harmful to try and help them target heavy smokers? Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
is it, are you going to do more harm by identifying people who are heavy smokers and potentially leaving that data in the cloud? Because let's just face it, everything that you want to do is going to be in the cloud on an API. Yeah, I think uh, another yeah. relevant example is the opioid crisis, right? So the, yeah. uh, right? Yeah, so, perfect. Yeah, so you target people, to, uh, the companies targeted who were already abusing opioids and then you, you know, kept selling more and more into it. And then if AI were to be used, I don't believe it was, right? But in a, how bad the situation could have been. Yes, could you inadvertently end up harming the very people that you're trying to target could you end up har inadvertently harming them, like by having them as a list even? Because who wouldn't, what health insurer wouldn't want that list of heavy smokers? Or, you know, who wouldn't want to try and trigger them more to, to up their usage or whatever even more? Or, you know, what it, anyway, there's yeah, Courtney, Actually, sorry, I have a follow-up on that one, which yeah. is given that the business tendency is to maximize the business outcomes, whatever they may be, right? Maximize profit, maximize revenues, lower costs, right? All of those things. So that is a fundamental focus. So their natural tendency, taking this opioid crisis as an example, there were many companies involved and then a lot of companies paid big fines, right? Because they were maximizing profits, maximizing revenues, right? So, and then the right. ethical considerations went out the door. So that is the natural phenomenon. So given the situation in AI, Right. I mean, how can you insert this uh, this responsive responsibly AI ethics from get go? Like, who is managing it? Who is controlling it? I mean, what can you, as an advisor or coach, I mean, what should companies do? It should be the government regulations. Only governments can regulate it. Or is there a, a place for companies to somehow regulate it? This is the thing. It's all. It go, It comes back to culture, right? So there's a couple of things in capitalist culture, which, you know, that's where that's U.S. Yes, <laughs> so U.S. and Western in, world. In and actually, so most culture. of the world as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. In capture, capital culture, they often, at the executive, highest executive ranks, you kind of got to get into the heads of CEOs, right? And CEO, I used to run CEO roundtables. And so I've heard mm -hmm. a lot of the conversation that happens. And of course, we all, they consider an ethical responsibility to be fiduciary responsibility. Okay. And we all know what, but let's just boil down what is fiduciary responsibility and, it, and should it compete with ethics, other ethical con uh, considerations? Because fiduciary responsibility is just, I have a set of investors, they've invested money and I am supposed to try and make them as much money as I can. And what we've seen in capitalist society is that that fiduciary responsibility competes with ethical, humanistic concerns, right? Like, and what we're watching and what we've been seeing is that often this has just been getting more and more and more and more uh, from a middle spectrum to an off, just like an off the charts greed spectrum at this point. <laughs> like we're just seeing like unprecedented salaries for CEOs, yeah. you know, back in the, I don't know, seventies, it was more like this. Now it's just like, you're so far away from regular employees. You probably have no clue how, what affects regular people anymore. Sure. So, yeah. Go ahead, Peggy. 
no, no, the gap is what is certainly widening. So and, and it's just get, but we've seen that what governs a lot of the C-suite really is that fiduciary responsibility because also they're incented that way, right? Because the more they make for Wall Street or whatever their investors are, and even private companies usually have a set of investors that they're trying to pay back, right? I mean, so the, we've seen that that gets taken as much more important because there's also bonuses and, and incentive structures and Product. easy to measure. It's just, it's just easy to measure money. It's money. So it's harder to measure qual- people's quality of life. And it's harder to tackle the things that don't have a monetary value or that aren't easily measured. Yeah. Like, you know, did we, do, do we have enough diversity and inclusion? What's the way that people measure that? They don't have a metric for inclusion, by the way, but they have a metric for diversity. Did we hire enough of those people? Yeah. Yes, check. But do we actually include them in any of our decision-making that matters? That's a tough one. too hard to measure. <laughs> right, There's right. no bonus attached to that. There's no, and there, and so, you know, and there's not, there's also not a culture of that, of really, uh, thinking about um, how you know how are we widening the gap as, as as different companies and you know what's happening to regular people. There's no there's no incentive to for any for any executives to take that on, and it's too hard. <laughs> That's very true. I think it's also very hard to measure. I know recently um, Starbucks started to tie their executive bonuses um, to diversity and inclusion, but again, it's um, whether or not the actual d- diversity of their workforce is included in the decision-making is different than actual hiring, Courtney. So uh, agree with you there. I actually wanted to take it back to an er- some earlier comments you made. Um, really the first question around AI ethics ties back to data or Ultimately, itself, you know, because you, you kind of walked us through to um, AI, AI ethics ties to strategy, ties to, um, to actual data itself, and it sounded like the the actual foundation in order to do and execute on good AI ethics boils down to a good data management program. Is that- Absolutely. And look who's left out over here in the cold, chief data officers, yep. chief legal officers. You know, when I first left IBM and I announced I was on great terms, by the way, so, mm-hmm. you know, you don't have to worry about that or anything. But but when I left and, and um, I was expecting to hear from all my, my chief data officer friends, you know, and wh- who I heard from instead when I announced I was leaving to do AI ethics was legal officers, compliance Hmm. officers, um, risk, people like that. And the reason is they are worried about what they're not involved in. Um, And I was, as I went through my journey of kind of being like this AI Shark Tank executive within IBM looking for all these solutions, I, I rarely saw data officers involved. And there was no rigor yeah. around how data gets done on these teams. Like, that, as a matter of fact, let me tell you how bad the situation is. The situation is so bad. So these lead data scientists, their whole goal in life is to do some magnificent off the charts project that they can list on a resume 
it'll be done and they want to be done with the company in anywhere from 12 to 24 months tops. So they're not, they're not doing something to stay. They're doing something so that they can go on to the next big thing, whatever that is, a big Google job, a big Uber job, a big whatever. But they'll start inside corporations because those are easier to get started on, um, you know, and make your name with, and then you move up and move up and move up. So these guys are going to move on. They don't have an interest in documenting data. They have little junior data science, data scientists, well, that undermines their job. I'm sorry. They have very up-and-coming, ambitious junior data scientists, <laughs> real junior data scientists, people who know how to do machine learning is what I mean, and do coding. Yeah. Um, not your citizen data scientist, not your business analyst person, but a person who truly knows how to do like machine learning and algorithm creation um, and model, model creation. Um, so you have these people here and then... Um, and then you have these um, application developers and these, these people, they just don't, <laughs> they don't have an interest in keeping any kind of data management records. As a matter of fact, I even, um, uh, well, I don't want to give away names, but the head of a very, very well-used algorithm that we mm -hmm. all have, we all have scores of it, financial scores. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he even has a hard time um, making people who come into his organization and it's a very public algorithm, right? We yeah. all know about score financial scores. Yeah. <laughs> and even he has a hard time getting data scientists who will agree to document what they've munched together, how they munched it together, keep track of what that data source was at that moment. Um, he's even using blockchain to try and do it. This is no small thing. And the people who know how to do that stuff the best are those chief data officers. Yeah, officers, yeah, they're the ones they that won't all they about as a slowdown. Yeah, I mean, more than that's you're making us slow down. We are on MVP and agile, and we don't have time yeah. for you to stand in our way and tell us we need to document everything that we're doing. Because we got to get an MVP out the door in six to eight weeks. That's what I've heard. <laughs> That's what all the us down, data people. You're slowing us down. <laughs> well, that's where the conflict is, right? Where CDOs and data management teams are all about documentation and, and lineage and sourcing and ensuring good quality data is being used. And then, as you said, there's a whole... Uh, science team who just wants to deliver really and quickly. So, to your point, Peggy, these people, what I was going to say, how bad it was, I've seen these people retire million dollar algorithms because they have, when this person leaves, the lead data scientist, because they have no way of knowing what went in it. They can't answer questions about how it works. And as we all know, AI and algorithms are not a set it and forget it. You got to go back in, take a look, govern it. When some kind of API breaks or they update it constantly, which let's face it, that's what they do. That's what API is all about. They just constantly update those things, right? Yeah. Or internally, when people, when you're using it in an enterprise resource planning system, like, you know, let's look at Salesforce, for example. If you're using it because marketing officers right you want to use customer relationship management software with this and and it's in the cloud so why can't you just use it you know your sprinklers and of the world and your 
you know, all the ones that are managing all your channels and things, you want to be able to use all those things together. But if any one part of that breaks or the data isn't coming through in the same way that you expected it to, your algorithm is going to suddenly be like, oh, well, when that data does, when that data shifted or it changed formats or whatever it did, yeah. suddenly your algorithm will be picking up pieces of data from particular uh, API sets, which means you could have whole groups of people. Maybe you, maybe one of those data feeds was to get more um, diversity. Let's say maybe it was an uh, African American students or something that you were trying to make sure were part of your feed coming in to make sure you had diversity. Well, if suddenly that breaks for your in your system, you have no representation of them, and then suddenly your algorithm, what it's learning has shifted. Now it's like suddenly it's just all back to picking, I guess, white people for that particular job or whatever. Yeah, exactly. I'll say it's AI and hiring is the use case. I don't know. It depends on yeah. the use case and what kind of data. But Courtney, actually, you're bringing up a point which, in my opinion, is exacerbating because if I go back and look at it, programming was like that. There are people who would not document, right? As a result, you know, you hear stories on the Wall Street and the financial world, the programs that were written for mainframes in COBOL language, right? No documentation. So they have to keep, you know, maintaining those um, systems forever and ever. And then uh, I hear this funny story about COBOL programmers are the most difficult ones to get, you know, right now because the financial world needs, but AI is exacerbating that situation because the models are black boxes. And the data scientists themselves, they might see that and they don't want documented. They might see value in not documenting because, you know, their value goes up in all those human factors uh, as a matter mm -hmm. of fact. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you liked what you heard today and would like to hear more, please subscribe to our podcast on your favorite player like iTunes and Spotify. And please do rate our podcast. Also, please go to our website, www.datatransformerspodcast.com for more episodes, blogs, and information on our speakers. Thank you.